This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Her belly hurts. It's the middle of the night, and as the little girl lies in bed, clutching her abdomen, she stifles a moan. She's had the stomach ache for three days now, and what began as a dull throb has sharpened into a jabbing torture, as if one of Mother's sewing machines were targeted right at her gut. She can't help it. A weak whimper escapes her throat. Immediately, Mother is there. Her cool hand presses to the girl's forehead and recoils at the warmth In a town like Atchison, there are no carriages on the streets at this late hour. So mother hoofs it, daughter scooped into her arms, barreling toward that house. The door opens too eagerly upon mother's knock. It's Dr. Finney. He appraises them coldly as mother explains it all. The fever, the bellyache. The doctor strips the girl and lies her flat on his frigid steel work table. She hears him talking to mother. The little girl doesn't know what an appendix is, but it sounds like something's seriously wrong with hers. Dr. Finney gives the girl a drink. He says it will help her sleep through the procedure. She closes her eyes. The little girl awakens. How long has it been? There's Dr. Finney approaching with A scalpel? She was supposed to be asleep for... He must not know she's awake. She has to tell him. But she's paralyzed from the potion. She can't make a sound. Her eyes dart frantically. The doctor has the knife poised above her belly. But then he meets her gaze. Thank goodness he knows. The operation will be... His lips pull back over his teeth in a horrible, venomous smile. As the scalpel slices her abdomen, rending the flesh viciously, she tries in vain to squirm. The doctor leans in, his hot breath conveying a whisper. Now, now, you're not going anywhere, Sally. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Sally House, whose tragic past has left marks both physical and spiritual, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, on Twitter, at ParCast Network, and at ParCast.com. 
Many of you have asked how you can support Haunted Places. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review. Atchison, Kansas was founded in 1854 on the banks of the Missouri River. For a short time thereafter, it was poised to be the next American boomtown, but other Midwest cities soon surpassed it, and the economic prosperity promised to this charming Kansas town dissipated. Instead, Atchison became famous for something else entirely. It's the most haunted place in Kansas, and one of the most haunted cities in the United States. The town is home to dozens of ghostly haunts and sites, from gargoyle-bedecked homes with satanic ties, to parks where the spirits of murdered women wander and wail in the night. But the most haunted house in Atchison sits just northeast of downtown. Constructed in 1871, the unassuming two-story white home on North 2nd Street, the Sally House, announces its address, 508, in simple cursive script above the doorway. But that simplicity deceives. The history of this home is dark and tragic. According to legend, a young girl by the name of Sally was brought here one night in 1905 by her mother, suffering from an appendix on the verge of bursting. Dr. Charles Finney, who then occupied the home, was quick to diagnose and start operating, but in his haste gave the child an improper amount of anesthetic. She awoke during the procedure and, believing that Finney was torturing her, cursed his name with a yell. I hate you forever. She died that night on the operating table. Some say that Sally's ghost haunts this home now, sometimes playing harmless pranks on occupants, other times reenacting the rage and fear she suffered that night. Minor supernatural events were recorded at the home throughout the 20th century, but the house wouldn't become infamous wouldn't become the Sally House until the early 90s. A string of incidents led supernatural investigators to discover that little Sally's presence, or something claiming to be it, still lingered on the property. Before anyone knew what terrors the Sally House held within, a young couple by the name of Deborah and Tony Pickman moved into the home of their dreams and walked straight into a waking nightmare. On New Year's Eve, 1992, Deborah and Tony Pickman signed the lease on a little house at 508 North 2nd Street. Six months later, their first child was born. And for their first year in the house, not yet known as the Sally House, nor famous for its hauntings, things were peaceful. They were building a family they were happy. It helped that the house was gorgeous, of course. Modest, yes, but for two small-town kids like the Pickmans, that was just right. When you entered the house, a spacious living room welcomed you to the right, through which one could cross to reach a large kitchen. Stairs ahead of the front door led to the second floor, where the bedrooms were, and the nursery. Oh, the nursery. It was perfect for the child they were expecting any day now. 
windows on almost every wall. A bright, airy room with ample shelf space for the multitude of stuffed animals Tony and Deborah had been buying in preparation for their newest family member. Tony thought the place was perfect. Well, almost perfect. He couldn't help feeling that the basement was a little depressing. Unfinished, bearing craggy, crumbling stone walls. There was even a large chunk missing from the backmost wall. The hole was just big enough for a person to squeeze through, if for some reason they wanted to, though it seemed only to lead into a dusty, dank crawlspace. Overall, a stark picture of decrepitude, in contrast with the coziness of the rest of the place. But Tony kept the basement door closed. As long as he stayed upstairs, there was nothing to be concerned about. Right? The incidents began small. Lights would flicker. Electronics would turn off. Bad wiring, they thought. The dog would stand at the threshold of the nursery, not stepping in, just barking at nothing. And when the baby was born, things just got stranger and stranger. It was 3 a.m., Tony's turn. The kid had been waking up every hour on the hour. Was this how newborns were, Tony wondered? Dr. Spock never said it would be like this. Sure, some sleeplessness. But the baby wasn't even crying. It was laughing. Every time he woke, it was as if someone had been playing with the baby. Entertaining it. Tony was so tired. He put the kid down into his crib and stepped back into the hallway. Moonlight etched a path down to the master bedroom, and Tony's eyes followed it to the crack in the door. Deborah was sleeping. She looked so sweet, so beautiful, so restful. He didn't want to disturb her. He decided to hold off climbing back into bed, instead going down to the kitchen for something to drink. As he filled his glass, he shivered. God, this place was drafty. He'd have to look into weatherproofing before the winter, or they'd be living in an icebox. Kansas winter wasn't kind to the unprepared. Tony dropped the glass. Juice spilled everywhere. But Tony barely noticed. His eyes were fixed dead ahead on the kitchen doorway. On the little girl. She wore a simple frock, high-waisted, with ribbon affixing the frilled collar around her neck. But the clothes were torn, dirty. Rips and runs marred the garment's beauty. So did the look on her face. Her eyes were bloodshot, wide open, as if she'd been crying. Her mouth hung, agape. And her gaze never left him. Tony felt his legs move beneath him, not running, just walking, calmly. As he neared her, the girl disappeared. But that didn't bother him. He wasn't thinking about her anymore. He wasn't really thinking about anything. But his legs were moving. That felt right. A burning sensation snaked its way across Tony's lower back. 
as if someone were driving hot nails just above his waist. It wasn't painful, though. It seemed in some way to be driving him, propelling him forward. He stepped through the kitchen doorway. He should have been in the dining room, but he was upstairs now, at the end of the hall. Tony didn't think he'd taken another step, and yet here he was, outside the master bedroom. The door pulsated with a soft light, drawing him in like a moth to flame. And there, in his hand, what was that? Oh, huh. a jagged shard of glass. Must have picked it up in the kitchen. He ran his finger along the sharp edge. Yes, this would do nicely. He was thinking of Deborah, of Deborah and of the glass. He knew what he was here to do. He stepped into the bedroom. We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, let's continue the story. With the gentle push... Tony swung the bedroom door wide open. Pale moonlight hung in the air. A gray-blue pall cast over the bed. It was empty. Deborah wasn't there. Deborah's scream jolted Tony, piercing through the haze and bringing him back to the present. He dropped the glass, shaken at what he'd been about to do, horrified that he'd thought about it, even for a second. He turned to see Deborah down the hall, standing at the doorway to the nursery, looking into it. Her hand was clasped over her mouth. Tony swallowed his guilt and joined Deborah at the threshold, following her gaze. There, on the floor of the nursery, were the baby stuffed animals. But they weren't scattered haphazardly about. They were arranged in a circle, their backs all facing the center. Deborah asked if he'd done this, and Tony shook his head. The baby was giggling in his crib, but he was in his crib, so he hadn't done it either. Deborah said something. Tony wasn't listening. He was just staring at her. Her close-cropped hair, the curve of her jawbone, her narrow face. He was imagining bashing it in. Tony caught himself. Why was he having these thoughts? He loved Deborah. He would never, but he wanted to. He told Deborah that they should leave now. Deborah couldn't agree quickly enough, and she ran into the nursery to grab baby Taylor. She just swaddled the child in her arms and was coming back out to Tony when something, someone shoved Tony toward the steps. 
he tumbled over the railing, plummeting down to the ground below. He just barely managed to grab onto the edge of the floor between two balusters, dangling precariously over the staircase below. With Deborah's help, he eased himself down onto the stairs, and they headed for the front door. They kept running until they reached the car. Inside the car, safe from the house, the Pikmin stopped to collect themselves. Tony was wincing. The burning he'd felt across his back had intensified, and he could feel the warmth of blood seeping into his shirt. At Deborah's insistence, he lifted his shirt for her to take a look. In his lower back were three deep, bloody gouges, fresh, like claws. The Pikmins would live in the home for another year, the unexplained activity continuing unabated. Tony regularly found himself with new, deeper scratches and cuts. He felt violent thoughts toward his wife, though he never acted on them. And visitors would sometimes find themselves attacked by flying objects. Deborah's mother even had a lamp thrown at her. Fires would start unprompted, especially in the nursery, setting off the smoke alarms. Then, just as quickly, would extinguish. Eventually, the family shared their story with the world. Paranormal investigators detected a spirit that called herself Sally, giving the house its name. Though to this day, they disagree on how many spirits occupy the space and what their intentions are. A camera crew even caught the scratches forming live on Tony's body during an attempt to contact the spirits of the house. The Pikmins and the home became famous. But fame came at too high a cost. Finally, in 1994, the Pikmins couldn't handle the torment any longer, and they moved away. Just what was it that haunted the Pikmin family? Was it a little girl? stuck forever in a moment of torment and fear, lashing out at the only man around? Or was it a demon that drove Tony almost to the unthinkable? Could Sally's apparition have been a warning to the family, one that went dangerously unheeded? One sign that something more than just Sally resides in that house is the Pikmin's experiences after moving away. Supernatural occurrences followed them into their new homes. Years later, Tony would awaken one morning on the lawn of the Sally house with no clue how he got there. Some kind of force, sometimes referred to as demonic oppression, had latched itself onto the couple. And no matter how far they moved, it stayed with them. Because once the Sally House has you, it never lets you go. After Deborah and Tony Pickman left the house, a new tenant moved in. Complaints of supernatural activities stopped altogether. But just because someone's not complaining, doesn't mean there's nothing happening, as Les Smith, landlord of the Sally House, discovered one afternoon in the mid-90s. 
Les banged on the door for a third time, then heaved a frustrated sigh. The woman told him she'd be here today. She knew he had to read the meter in the basement, and he'd given her plenty of notice. But now, he'd been standing out here for five minutes with no answer. Oh well, he'd just have to let himself in. Frankly, he'd just as soon not have her around. She wasn't warm and friendly like the Pikmins had been. On the other hand, at least this lady wasn't telling everyone ghost stories about the place, driving down the value. Les was starting to wonder if the whole thing hadn't just been a hoax to get themselves on TV. Les stepped inside the front hallway and called out. He thought perhaps that the woman's children might be home, but the place was silent, the air still. It was empty. Les didn't want to hang around long, but he couldn't help but be curious about what his new tenant had done with the place. Everyone has their own style, and he always liked to see how someone made a home their own. The decor was unnervingly bare. The place was furnished, all right, but not a hint of personality. And yet, the woman had six children. There was not a trace of them to be found. No children's toys, no trinkets or mementos. What Les did notice were the candles. There were a lot of them. Every flat surface, it seemed, had a tall, dark candle stationed upon it. So she likes candles, he thought. Nothing so strange about... Hmm. He stepped closer. The candles were heavily melted. Streaks of wax congealed and hardened down the length of each one. These were well used, except... The wicks, without exception, were white, unburned. Les was suddenly overcome with the thought that he'd been in this house for a very, very long time. He shook himself from his stupor. You're getting too nosy, Les told himself. You're going to get yourself in trouble. He returned himself to the task at hand, trundling through the kitchen and on toward the basement. No more messing around. If his tenant came home in the middle of this, he'd better be hard at work, he figured. The meter was in the basement. Les stared at the cellar door, its cracked, peeling paint curling outward from the wood. He hesitated for a long moment, wondering if he should just reschedule. But he was being ridiculous. A deep breath renewed his confidence and he opened the door. Damn it, the light was out. Les squinted his eyes hard into the black abyss into which the stairs descended. But he could make out nothing. He didn't need the light, right? He'd been down there a hundred times. The tiny light provided by his flip phone, well, it wasn't going to light the way or anything, but it would be enough to read the meter by. Cautious step after cautious step, Les worked his way down the seemingly endless stairs. Well, probably closer to 13 of them, if you thought about it. Though that number didn't make him feel much better. Oof. More like 12, he discovered with an unpleasantly hard landing on the concrete of the basement. He allowed a moment for his eyes to adjust. 
they didn't. He conjured an image of the room in his mind. Walls straight ahead and to the right. Stairs behind him. To his left, the basement proper. A cramped space. He hated cramped spaces. Les girded himself and moved into the main chamber of the room, sliding his shoes along the floor so as not to lose his footing. Should be just a few more feet now. He shivered. Must be a draft. Maybe from that damned hole at the back. He really needed to get that bricked up. Ah, here it was. Les felt for his phone, hoping to illuminate the small hands of the meter and be on his... The basement light flickered on, and then off again, just as Les whirled around to look. It was pitch black again already, only the faintest impression of objects remaining in his vision. Surely he hadn't seen right. Those bizarre items, misshapen and rusted, but he had to know for sure. He was just going to tap on the light bulb, maybe tighten the connection a bit. That's surely what the problem was. Then he'd see that this was just a storage space, maybe a Halloween decoration here or there. Twas almost the season anyway. Les stopped at the center of the room and reached his hand up to the bulb. The light flickered on, then off, then on again. This time, it stayed. It took Les a moment to comprehend what he was looking at. A large cast iron pot of some kind, roughly the size of a dishwasher, with a scaly black surface. He'd stubbed his toe on a cauldron? And beside it, jars of slimy, pickling masses were stacked atop one another. Les didn't want to think about what exactly was floating in their opaque yellow water. His attention was soon pulled away from these bizarre items, to the back of the room, to the hole in the wall, and to the bespoke bramble wreath that adorned it. Small figurines, many lacking clothes or limbs or even heads, hung loosely from the wreath. The desiccated twigs that twined around one another all sported sharp-looking thorns. Les moved in to take a closer look, then stopped. Something was not biting him, not blocking him. He simply couldn't muster the will to move. He looked around himself, then down at his feet, and that's when he noticed. Les Smith was standing atop some sort of design. A series of crude lines scored deeply into the concrete floor, connecting, intersecting, etched lines in the shape of a pentagram. Above, there was someone walking around. She had come home. He hadn't heard her come in, but he heard her now. His eyes followed the path footfalls traced overhead. His mind raced with ways to get out, but his legs, they simply wouldn't go, and the footsteps were getting closer. Les considered his options. If he could just move, he could fit into the hole. Or he could have a moment ago, before the scarred hands had emerged from it, gripping either side of the wreath, 
unmindful of the thorns that tore through their charred, blackened skin. Then, from the blackness of the hole, a head emerged. The figure Les saw was almost a silhouette, its features impossible to discern. But one thing was perfectly visible. The gleaming white of its razor-sharp teeth. The last thing Les remembered about that moment was the basement door opening, revealing his new tenant at the top of the stairs. Then suddenly, his legs were working again, and he found that they were ferrying him furiously up the stairs, past the tenant without so much as a glance, and out the front door in what felt like a flash. Les never returned to the house. Shortly thereafter, the new tenant moved away. But to this day, where the pentagram was etched in the basement, a black splotch on the floor marks futile efforts to scrub the room of its evil history. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, let's continue the story. Throughout the 90s, tenants came and went from the Sally House, and the stories of hauntings accumulated. There was the young mother whose daughter made an imaginary friend with a girl named Sally, or the neighbor who heard her son scream one night, terrified of the black flying monsters he swore were flying all around. His bedroom looked directly onto the nursery of the Sally House. Eventually, the hauntings scared off new tenants, and by the early 2000s, the Sally House lay vacant. But that didn't mean it was dormant. In fact, the Sally House's reputation and popularity have only grown in the years since its residents fled. Tourists and locals flock to it, as do TV crews hoping to catch a glimpse of the supernatural on camera. And sometimes, these crews aren't prepared for what they end up seeing. You grimace as the tiny jalopy you rented at the airport hits a pothole. Your stomach was already feeling shaky enough after the string of flights from Los Angeles. And now, an hour's drive out of Kansas City just to get to some podunk town on the border of nowhere. These country drivers are crazy. You thought L.A. had maniacs on the road, but these guys are going near a hundred as they pass you on every side of the highway. It's hot here, too. You didn't know it could get so hot and humid. Even as the sun sets in the horizon, beads of sweat work their way down your neck. All you want to do is get to this house, get your footage, and get out. Here we are, Atchison. You admire the downtown. Even a city dweller like yourself can recognize the charm of those big windowed shops. These small town streets. Maybe this won't be as bad as you were expecting. Sure, this business can feel a little silly sometimes, but at least you get to travel. Just as long as you don't have to stay here too long. It's after dark when you reach the house. No problem. You'll want that nighttime vibe to spook your viewers anyway. 
Hopefully, everyone's ready to go when you get inside, though. Hmm. No cars in the driveway. Your crew was supposed to be here and ready for filming an hour ago. Perhaps there's an alley round back? Maybe they set up camp there. You approach the house. You know it's white. You've done your homework. But here, on a moonless night, it looks like a pitch-black mausoleum set against a suburban backdrop. You shake it off. It's just dark out. Still, the other houses don't look like that. Good. As promised, the door is unlocked. You step in to see, placed in the front hallway beside the stairwell, a baby bassinet with a doll inside. Nice touch. The house is dark. Your hand automatically reaches for the switch. Before you remember, the place has been abandoned for years. Nobody's paying the power bills here. So you fumble for your cell phone to illuminate the room. Dusty furniture fills the living room, and each step kicks up a mushroom cloud of particles that settle on your pant legs. There's nobody here. You check your watch. Almost 10 o'clock. Where the hell? Ah, oh, now you hear them. Downstairs, it sounds like. In the basement. They're talking quietly. Maybe planning to jump out and scare you when you walk in. Well, you're not going to fall for that. When you find it, the basement door is closed. You shoulder your equipment and gird yourself for the jump. Hmm. It's dark down there. Guess they're really not here. Bunch of amateurs. This is why you usually don't work with local crews. Oh, well. You can go down and get set up while you wait anyway. You set up your workspace. A small folding table and a little work lamp that illuminates the room just barely more than your phone did. Soon you're ready to go, though. And frankly, there's not much to do without the others. The darkness doesn't bother you. You've been to enough so-called haunted houses by now. It takes more than a dank basement to give you goose flesh. So you sit against the wall. And you wait. You awaken with a jolt. You thought you heard someone talking. But as you strain to hear, there's just... silence. Must have been a dream. You really fell asleep fast there. The travel knocked you out. It's dark. You're just starting to wonder who turned off your work lamp when the laughter is distant, echoed. It puts a lump in your throat that you forcefully swallow. Surely the guys are here. They're just pulling a fast one on the out-of-towner. You dryly announce that you know just what they're up to and you're not impressed. No response. You shout into the black void around you. You dare them. If someone's there, then show yourself. Was that a brick? It just barely missed your head. And if all this was ever funny, you're not laughing anymore. You pull out your flashlight. You see a flash of light at the far end of the room. It seems like it's coming from a hole. 
There's a hole in that wall over there. But you've read about that. That's where the demon lives. You try to shrug off the notion, but the sound of that brick still ricochets in your eardrums. As you walk toward the slow strobe emanating from the hole, you lean forward, squinting, trying to see what's making the light. But even as you get right up to it, you can't tell. The hole seems to lead to some sort of tunnel. Christ, you're going to go in the tunnel, aren't you? Damn it. There goes your light. Down into some crevice. You think about cutting your losses and turning back. But come on, you're a veteran of this stuff. You're not scared. To prove it, you inch forward down the tunnel. The tunnel begins to open up, and in a moment you... Oh! You hit the floor hard. As you come out of a daze, your eyes scan across this unknown room. You can almost remember something like this from the house floor plan you studied, but it was crossed out. They didn't think anything was in here. Your eyes try to adjust, but the flashing light makes it tough. It's positioned in the middle of the room, its bulb intermittently lighting and distinguishing. But as your pupils dilate and the room comes into focus, you notice a body on the floor behind the flashlight. And there's a video camera toppled on its side on top of the body. In fact, there's not just one body. There's tons of them covered in deep, bloody scratches, running the lengths of their faces and bodies. Then, you see her. A little girl. Old-timey clothing. And she's pointing at you. No, not at you. She's pointing behind you. The mysteries of the Sally House have only deepened with further investigation. Even the name itself is of dubious origin. Town records reveal no known mention of a little girl named Sally who died in 1905, much less in the care of Dr. Finney at the house that would be her namesake, although a flood in 1958 destroyed many documents. And yet psychics and paranormal investigators have both pinpointed the presence of someone named Sally lingering in the home. Perhaps that little girl was just an urban legend, but there was a Sally who lived and died in Atchison in 1905, in an unidentified home on 2nd Street. Sally Isabel Hall was an African-American woman who, according to local records, was 34 years old when she died. Is it possible the unspecified 2nd Street home was the two-story abode now known by her name? Was she, in fact, the Sally who died on Finney's operating table? Her obituary may provide some clues as to the nature of the house's haunting. It reads, Mrs. Hall was only 34 years of age, but she had given birth to 14 children in the last 16 years. All but four died at birth. Think of the suffering 
think of the tragedy crowded into one brief life. The story of the Sally House and its inhabitants over the years may well be the story of Atchison itself, of dreams never quite achieved, promises never quite fulfilled. The life-saving operation ends in death, and the dream home becomes a nightmare. Think of the tragedy crowded into one humble home, and the victims of that tragedy stuck within those walls, waiting to unleash their sadness and rage. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. A new episode comes out every Thursday. Listen to all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. A lot of you ask how to help the show. And if you enjoy Haunted Places, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. We'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Haunted Places is written by Thomas Dolan Gavitt. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs> <laughs>